Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's all-in podcast on genre television currently focused on HBO's Watchmen. This week, we are diving deep into Season 1, Episode 4. If you don't like my story, write your own. And if you don't like my podcast, you can record your own. This one shall be co-hosted by the great Antonio in the Sky, my partner on this weekly Watchmen adventure. Antonio Mazzaro, to your merits, Mr. Mazzaro. <laughs> you trying to put us out of business here, Josh? You're telling people to record their own podcast? I'm telling them to go three, two, one, away! <laughs> Crookshanks. Crookshanks. Yeah, uh, please, if you've got any dead clones lying around, this is the time to fire them away. <laughs> Just get out of here. No, yeah. Antonio and I, we are back for our fourth weekly Watchmen podcast. We're talking about episode four. If you don't like my story, write your own is the mouthy title here. Uh, once again, here for uh, for Watchmen on HBO airing Sunday nights. These podcasts coming your way as quickly after the episodes as humanly possible. Antonio, a truly wonderful episode of television to discuss. I see what you did there. Yes. It is it is definitely a truly Very bad pun. wonderful yes. episode. We talked last week about how maybe last week's was the most Watchmen-like in, in terms of the graphic novel episode of Watchmen the series. This may have been the least because we have a character, Lady True, who is not in the graphic novel so far as we know. We may theorize on that a little bit. Completely wholly uh, the creation of the show and she is such a significant part of this episode. She's at the beginning, she's there in the middle, and she's certainly there at the end. Uh, and time is on her side. She's tracking a lot yes, of what's is. going on. So it was definitely, in my opinion, it was maybe the least Watchmen-like episode of the show thus far. Doesn't make it a bad episode. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, the intrigue certainly is brewing here, Josh. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to dive deep into this episode. Uh, if you don't like my story, write your own. Co-written by series creator Damon Lindelof and Crystal Henry. Directed by Andre Perec, uh, who is the cinematographer of the first episode of the series of Watchmen, uh, has directed a few episodes of Succession as well. Really excellent work there. Antonio, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the right place to, to start is this week. As you mentioned, it's, it's, it's an episode that very prominently features this new character, Lady True, played by Hong Chao. There's also, of course, everything that's happening with Jeremy Irons at the, uh, you know, the Lord of the Manor sequences, which we can now call Adrian Veidt sequences, which is very, very exciting. But there's also so much action for Regina King, for Angela Abar, who is once again really, really front and center after last week's heavy dose of Laurie Blake, of Gene Smart entering the picture, bringing the iconic character from Watchmen, the comic book, to life on the show for you just kind of looking at like the sum total of this episode what were some of the more standout aspects to you i love the sequence with regina king at, at the heritage center 
uh, seeing her family tree. It, it was at, it, at, the, at the same time, uh, it was haunting uh, and it was upsetting and it was moving just in a, a positive way. I just felt so good for her to get to know some of her story, but just to understand the connections of that story, it was a lot. I thought it was really well presented. And I thought for a moment in the episode that, that, filled in some blanks for her, but maybe we've yet to see how directly connected it is to the larger story of who killed Judd or what's going on largely in the series. Maybe not as significant as yet, but a great scene there. That jumped off the page to me. Uh, and then, of course, the beginning uh, had a similar sort of family motive. A Lady True basically comes out and says... That legacy is so important. I would say that legacy was certainly a theme or the theme of this episode, but it may be that legacy is the theme of the whole series, Josh. I, I think that you could make that argument for sure, that we've seen that as a theme throughout every one of these episodes. It is certainly top of mind here throughout. Yeah, I mean, it's something that Will Reeves, the Louis Gossett Jr. character, who can stand, by the way, and, oh, yeah. and is very imposing on his feet. His feet are fine, thank you very much. He's good to uh, go. Uh, but that is something that he he says to Angela, right, at the end of episode two, I want you to know where you come from. And that is certainly something that she's chasing down. She gets the chestnut. She gets to insert it into the ancestry. tree. Listen, I, I appreciate the, the pun game. Pun game strong in the Watchmen writer's room. They really like to go for it. But she Gets to, she gets to find out a little bit more about where she comes from, and she knows that if it, if it is indeed true that Will is her grandfather, and right now, you know, the show certainly seems us to to want us to believe that that she is genetically linked to to Louis Gossett Jr. Then she herself is directly linked to the Tulsa massacre, uh, and she's directly linked to those characters that we saw at the very very start of the series. So right there, legacy front and center. But as you mentioned, Lady True, who shows up and and talks about how legacy isn't land legacy isn't money legacy is what's in our blood it's passed to us from our ancestors and by us to our children that feels like a very declarative statement about what's being explored here in the hbo drama definitely definitely and it's a legacy that's complicated and it seems like in the case of most of the characters, the ones that are alive and the ones that are dead, are the ones that we've seen on screen earlier in the season or that we will continue to see. It just seems like it runs throughout. And I am, the idea of legacy is also very meta, of course, because the show itself is it, it owes its legacy to the, the great graphic novel that we've talked about here on this podcast and that hopefully people have read or have, have read for the first time uh, if they're taking this show in or at some point will read. Because if not, you are at serious risk of huge Watchmen comic book spoilers. Yeah, we cannot late. we cannot stress that enough each Josh, and every I, week. I, was already, I already did that <laughs> half yeah. an hour ago. Yes, yeah, yes. Like, uh, <laughs> it's been done. Yes. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, the legacy that the show owes to that graphic novel is so significant uh, that obviously it's present and top of mind in everything that they're doing. So it is also very meta in a way. And there are some meta moments in this episode and in the materials that they presented supplementally from last episode that, that really speak to that, that the legacy is so front of mind in terms of what's happening here. So it makes a lot of sense that it would be tied into just everything that's really happening in this story. Uh, and certainly right from the jump, 
the story of the Clark family and their happy, if sad, life, their lonely life a little bit, the fact that they love each other and can rely on each other the way that they can, and yet that they don't have a child and were unable to conceive. And it was something uh, they, they clearly had wanted. Yes. Yeah, they clearly had wanted, right? There are eggs everywhere, and we're going to have to talk about <laughs> yes. that. Uh, but My wife in... is triggered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your wife, notable egg allergy. Under, yes. Not underreported. No. I mean, your wife has an egg allergy. Correct. The, the eggs everywhere were there, and certainly Mrs. Clark's eggs uh, were not viable, as Lady True talks about. But they were viable to a point. Something happened. We meet Lady True in this sequence, and we find out she made her money from advanced pharmaceuticals and biomedical tech and fertility clinics. So that's what she's about, at least ostensibly. But she's a trillionaire. She's building some kind of clock tower, and she really wants their house. So right away, there's some kind of mystery associated with Lady True. But it turns out it seems like she can also make babies from not viable eggs. Yes. She she says that in, in advance of these negotiations, I took the liberty of creating your child. Excuse me? <laughs> How did you just do yeah. that? Um, but I mean, that itself is is kind of a wink back at the comic book uh, in its own way. I mean, it's a little bit of a reach, but the idea at, at, towards the end of the graphic novel of Ozymandias saying like, oh, I'm not just like laying out my evil plan for you to be able to thwart it. I already put it into action 35 minutes ago. Lady True is coming here and saying like, oh, I'm not negotiating here with something theoretical. I already made your baby. Like, this is right. a, this, this happened. Is, this happened. She also has the remarkably incredible uh, line delivery of you have 10 seconds or I'll have no choice but to destroy the baby. Guys, I'm joking. I'll give him a loving home. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that, was, that was just, it was delivered so, so well. Yeah, she, because she turns the screw and says, uh, but he'll never know where he came from. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, so for, for a character who's arriving, you know, not quite halfway through the first season of Watchmen, which could end up being the only season of Watchmen, as Damon Lindelof has talked about, wanting to leave it all out on the field for this one season of television, and who knows where it goes from here, but this season is designed to be a closed-ended story insofar as the graphic novel was a closed-ended story. The fact that this shows it exists shows you that there were still openings for, for the story to, to, to continue on. Um, but for a character who's arriving at essentially the halfway point of at least the season, if not the entire drama, Lady True arriving with authority, Antonio, uh, landing with incredible impact, almost as much impact that whatever that unidentified flying object is landing on the Clark family farm. Whatever it is, it's hers. That's the whole point of this yes. instant, like, fast negotiation she knew that thing was coming, whatever it was. I don't know if she even knows what it is specifically. She may well know what it is, but she may well not. She knew it was going to land where it was going to land. That's why she was so intent on getting their property as quickly as possible. So that's why she was even counting down the seconds because she knew the thing was going to land there and it was very important that she owned the property by then. So whatever it was, she knew it was coming and it's hers now. Uh, we're not, we didn't find out what it was in this episode. I'm not sure when we will find out what it was, but she not only has the ability to seemingly create life uh, out of unviable circumstances, uh, she is able to predict to some degree the events of the cosmos, uh, like what may land on what 
property when? Uh, she knew this was coming. I mean, she does have a giant tower that ostensibly is there to tell time, but there it seemingly is there for a much greater purpose. It is much more than a big clock, she says in this first scene. So it's probably used uh, in, in this way to see what's coming and to know where she needs to go uh, to get what's coming. Whether the tower drew it there in some way, whether it involves Dr. Manhattan in some way, I guess TBD. But Lady True is on top of this for sure. It's a giant lighthouse that uh, is watching oh, everybody's no. lives somewhere far away from its present location. No, been there, done that. I'm going to yeah. pretend you're talking about Annihilation. No. Uh, not else. <laughs> oh, true, true, true. Lady True. Lady True. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Lady True is here. She's in the house. Uh, the Millennium Clock, which we had seen a little bit of, uh, of last week in episode three as Blake and Petey are flying into Tulsa. They're, set, they're told we have a bird's eye view of the Millennium Clock if you want to look outside. So whatever this is, whatever's being created here, it's a fairly big deal already within the world of Watchmen. I don't think that that's something you clandestinely build in the middle of America. Uh, you know, it's not like Karnak, which was Ozymandias' secret kind of lush tropical layer in Antarctica, which isn't necessarily heavily populated otherwise. Uh, but this is obviously it's uh, it's at least a mile. It's a, it's what I think what she said, something like 60 miles away from the, the hovercrafts that are flying in and out of this area have like a 60 mile range, I think, was the was the math on that. So about that far away from Tulsa, like they're they're not building this under cover of night. The world knows what the Millennium Clock is, at least to some degree. And I would not be surprised at all to get um, some of these ancillary materials on HBO.com slash PDpedia, where uh, HBO has been really delivering incredible bonus content for Watchmen that if you have if you have not checked it out, you really ought to do it. Antonio and I keep hyping it up here on the podcast, and I'm sure that there's going to be some details on the Millennium Clock soon. But as far as you can recall from reading PDpedia, does anything stand out to you on that front yet? Definitely not. Uh, the one thing that did stand out is Blinken, you miss it, but Lady True's logo or the name True is on a lot of other stuff that we have seen already, perhaps most notably the Earth to Mars phone that Lori was using last episode right. uh, was a True Industries product. So whatever this Millennium Clock or Millennium Tower, if you want to call it that, is, it seems to be from a company, as I said, not only does she have the ability seemingly to create life, uh, she also took over Adrian Veidt's company, as we know. So whatever he was able to do, uh, he had made breakthroughs on Manhattan-like technology that allowed him to teleport a giant squid into the middle of New York uh, and do what he did with that. And he'd also obviously made some advancements in other ways with science uh, and technology. So she's got all that power. Plus, she has maybe some connection to Dr. Manhattan. Plus, she has this ability to create life. Plus, she has some ability to see time in some way that she knows this space junk is coming down onto the Clark property. Lady True's got a lot going on, for sure. What that tower is, ultimately, I'm sure we will find out. But do you find that it was in any way related to the circle that was around the Washington Monument that we saw in the background uh, of the episode uh, with Lori uh, in D.C. previously? Or was that just a circle around? On the top of the Washington Monument. Well, there's, they're both certainly very notable structures, and I was wondering the same thing. The thing that gives me some pause there is how the Millennium Clock is described here by Bion, who seems to be Lady True's daughter, who this is not a first sighting for her. We see her in episode two picking up the newspapers from Bunny Colvin, whoever he's playing, uh, from the great Robert Wisdom playing that role of the newsstand manager. So we've seen her before, and she's talking to Lori and 
Angela in this episode about the Lighthouse of Alexandria. That was the one I was talking about before, of course. You know, all these these wonders that have been destroyed by either seismic activity or being swept away by the tides or whatever other natural disasters. Uh, And this is is not the eighth wonder of the world that's being built here. It's the first wonder of a new world. It's far away from the coasts. It's inland. It's, you know, short of a direct nuclear blast, she says. It's going to endure anything. So this does not seem like this would be the same exact thing as something that already exists, such as the Washington Monument. But the the circular arrangement at the top of the clock, I couldn't tell if that was just like scaffolding or if that is part of the design. And I would, I would be inclined to believe that it's part of the design. Definitely. So I, as to what that means or where, where that connects, we don't know. Uh, it is interesting you remark about how of course, moving it to inland Oklahoma, you don't have to worry as much about those significant magnitude earthquakes, or you don't have to worry as much about the ocean swallowing it up like these old wonders of the ancient world. I guess the fracking earthquakes in Oklahoma that has more earthquakes, by the way, than California, I guess those don't count. But a direct nuclear blast, that could count. That's a, a thing where I, you say something like that. It makes me wonder if we're going to have that uh, before the end of this season. Right. Uh, maybe not a, a nuclear blast, but maybe some kind of Manhattan-level blast if Dr. Manhattan is to reappear in the context of this season of Watchmen. Does he take a shot at that tower? Because clearly he could destroy it. All right. So, well, I think that this is a good opportunity to talk about that a little bit more. What is Lady True's deal? I think that the show, at the very least, would like us to be suspicious of this character, wants us to to feel some some measure of nefariousness about her. Yes, she gives a child to the Clarks, but she does it really without their consent. She does it in a in a really shady way. Should she have the authority to create such a creature? Why is she working with Will Reeves, which we see by the end of the episode. This is something that they are planning, something that's going to occur in, I believe they said, three days. And whatever the outcome of it is going to be, Angela is not going to be thrilled about it. Will Reeves says she's going to hate me for this. Right. Um, but he also seems to not be phased by that fact. This is something that Lady True seems to be nervous about. She says, when family's involved, judgment gets cloudy, feet get cold, deals get broken, you're not in. That's when Will stands up and says, my feet are just fine uh and this is when he says you're concerned about whether i'm in in three days angela's gonna know what i've done and she's gonna hate me for it and you're concerned about whether i'm in i am in all the way and then he gives his own tiktok tiktok which is evocative and terrifying in the context of the tiktoks we've gotten on the show thus far definitely um i think that at least as far as we're we're being instructed i think that we're being instructed to be very very concerned about whatever it is these two characters are cooking up and that's interesting to me antonio because there's been a a major air of mystery surrounding will reeves thus far not the least of which is that he was literally like shot up into the air by hovercraft uh, a couple of episodes in high places earlier but he is also the boy at the heart of the very first scene of this entire show who like how do you not feel intense empathy and and horror on behalf of that young uh, child and yet he's now being aligned with somebody who i think is like relatively devious i think it just speaks to the morally cloudy arena that we're stepping into here with watchman well and it seems like will knows that he's as you've remarked angela's going to hate me he knows that there's some kind of difficulty coming you have to assume and hope that it is for a higher purpose that there that he has some larger goal in mind 
that he feels is right and that he feels is good. And that's consistent with the ethos of uh, of the graphic novel. I mean, Adrian, right. Adrian Veidt doesn't transform the world because he's a super genius, evil, you know, megalomaniacal, uh, you know, Republic serial villain, right? Like, it's because he <laughs> he believes this is the path towards saving humanity is, is eliminating a large chunk of humanity in order to accomplish that goal. It's a terrible Machiavellian thing, but the means are justified by the ends. It, if that is something that Will Reeves is trying to implement here, ideally, in a different way, you don't want this show to just completely repeat what happened in the comic. I can't imagine that it's going to. But if, like, tonally, it's aligning with that same idea of, like, doing something that seems monstrous and demonstrative and, and really uh, large and seismic, potentially, in scale, but for a greater good, at least in the perception of the character, that would be very tonally consistent with where this story comes from. Precisely. And of course, if you want to really break it down on that level, uh, this episode or this series, I'm sorry, did begin with a murder mystery in much the same way the graphic novel did. Now, it doesn't follow the same 12 issue, 12 episode structure. We're not going to do that kind of one to one. But we do have masked vigilantes. We do have some of the same masked vigilantes who were in the previous story and we're finding them at their place they are in their lives currently. And will they be affected by this? We're also seeing, if you want to talk about what Ozymandias tried to do in terms of uniting humanity around a common cause, maybe it didn't work to the extent that he wanted it to work. And so what happens then? The people that are picking up his work, quite literally, in this case, Lady True, probably could end up doing some of the same things he was doing. And in this case, that could mean creating, as you're saying, some sort of cataclysmic-like event that is meant to unify people around a common cause. In this case, if you want to talk about the graphic novel, the people who are at odds, were the U.S. and the Soviets, the Cold War. World War III was on the horizon, and what Adrian Veidt's actions were meant to do, and in fact did do, was stop World War III. So if you're talking about what are the issues that we as a society need to, or where, where can we put down our plowshares or put down our weapons around, uh, certainly the horrible issues surrounding the country's legacy around race. If we were able to ever able to find common ground on those issues uh, and ever able to make the right reparations and ever able to fix that, then maybe as a society and as humanity, we could make progress much in the same way Adrian Veidt wanted us to. So if you could cast that against the backdrop of what Lady True's doing and picking up Adrian Veidt's work, you sort of begin to see, even though you're saying maybe it would be a little one-to-one -one with the graphic novel, but you could sort of start to see the tendrils of what this might represent on the show and what that might start to look like if you're talking about Lady True and you're talking about Will Reeves, people who may be quote-unquote good-intentioned, but who may end up doing Horrible things. Are they going to kill 3 million people in Tulsa? I doubt it. Are they going to do things which could cause death and destruction, but which are meant to seemingly lead to a greater purpose? Uh, it's at least possible for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's worth noting also that the quote unquote bad guys win in the end <laughs> of the graphic right. novel. So if you're uh, if you're placing odds on an outcome here, you know, halfway through the story, thinking that whatever Lady True and Will Reeves are up to is going to work out. Pretty good bet, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would brace myself for that. Feels, uh, But I feel like because that's the case, that feels like uh, almost too easy. But who knows? Um, so so that's that's Lady True. And I, I think it's very instructive to talk about her in relation to Adrian Veidt. She's got the statue of Adrian Veidt. It's old man Adrian. Lori remarks, wow, he looks like shit. <laughs> She's like, well, I know that you respect elders in your, your culture, but in America, he just looks like shit, uh, is what she says about the, the statue of Adrian. Lady True bought the company after it seems Adrian Veidt was presumed dead. We know that Adrian Veidt is alive, or at least we expect that he is alive. The Lord of the Manor sequences this week gave us a better shape of um, the timeline there, at the very least. Yes. Uh, Jeremy Irons, in his very Jeremy Irons way, purrs out the information that he has been in that place for four years, which I think a lot of people had been suspecting with the numbers of candles and the honeycomb cake expanding by one every single anniversary, not to mention his tone shifting ever so slightly after each and every passing year if that was a year so it would appear that he has been there for four years so where is that in relation to where we are in the Tulsa story that could be years ago right like that could still be like five years earlier I think the PDpedia website indicates that Adrian Veidt disappeared in like 2010-ish somewhere around there I'm pretty sure uh, he's been presumed dead for many many years so is he uh, you know quite how long has he has he been gone for I think is is still in question but Lady True is at the very least very outwardly associated with that character but how about some of the the legacy characters speaking of legacy from Watchmen that she uh, she may also be associated with we've, we've talked about Dr. Manhattan as somebody you've seen True Industries connected to the Dr. Manhattan phone booth uh, so at least optically she seems to to have this this business running up that has this telecommunication with send your message to, to sweet old Dr. Manhattan on Mars. He'll be receiving your transmission shortly, and he will certainly, definitely, absolutely no hoax be listening to your words and take <laughs> them to his big blue heart. You know, if you if you buy that, I've got a giant squid in New York I'd like to sell I've you. I've got something in a briefcase I could sell you. Yeah, absolutely, with the big blue glow. But how else could she potentially be affiliated with Dr. Manhattan, who I think is a character that you and I and many other people expect will become more directly involved in Watchmen at some point down the line, whether it's soon or it's very late game. I'd be really shocked if we don't see Dr. Manhattan. Uh, same. By the yeah, end same. This. And there may be some hints uh, that we're already seeing him. We can talk a little bit about that or seeing some form of him uh, or that he is involved in our story without us even knowing it. That's definitely some, some stuff I think this episode and other episodes have hinted at. But in Lady True's case, she, along with Angela, is from Vietnam. She comes directly from Vietnam. She talks about how uh, on her deathbed, her mother made her swear she would never leave Vietnam. But Lady True builds a vivarium in Oklahoma and basically brings Vietnam to Oklahoma uh, with this climate-controlled atmosphere that she builds. Uh, so we know she's from Vietnam. And not unlike uh, Karnak in Antarctica. That not a unlike. That Adrian, Very similar. That Adrian Veidt is able to create. That's right. in the comic book. He has this you know, lush paradise in the middle of the frozen continent. No doubt. And the, the statue then of Adrian Veidt is well-placed there because of the direct connection uh, with this Vietnam vivarium. But we also know uh, that, that, she, that Angela came from Vietnam and that there is that legacy connection. We don't know the full story of Angela's parents passing away. Angela mentions it again in this episode that her parents died when she was very young. 
We know she's from Vietnam before it was officially a state, and we know she ended up back in Oklahoma, where seemingly she had some family roots uh, that we find out in this episode. We don't know exactly why Lady True is in Oklahoma overall. The idea that it's far from the ocean and maybe far from horrible seismic activity, it's a little appealing, but it really could have been anywhere. So why was it there? We don't fully know that yet. And why did she leave Vietnam? And if she was in Vietnam, there is, of course, the Vietnam connection to the graphic novel. In Watchmen, the graphic novel, the U.S. does not lose the Vietnam War. And the reason the U.S. wins the Vietnam War is we send Dr. Manhattan to Vietnam. And Dr. Manhattan is horrifying. I mean, Dr. Manhattan can make himself so huge. And he's a giant, big, blue, indestructible force that anyone's going to surrender, that you're going to win that war if he shows up there. He is the ultimate weapon. Superman is alive and he is real and he's American. uh, And we send him there. But that's not the only thing he does in Vietnam. There is an incident in the graphic novel with Laurie Blake's father, the comedian, that, Josh, I think you think might be a little more connected to Lady True than we know right now. Well, I think at the very least it's a possibility worth entertaining, especially as we're talking about legacy as it pertains to Watchmen and what is the legacy of the comic book as it pertains to the show and what is the what are some of the legacies that are in play within the universe of the story. And if you want to connect Lady True more directly to a character in the comic book, it's not impossible that she is the daughter of Edward Blake. It's not impossible that Lady True is the daughter of the comedian. Um, there is a, a sequence in the second issue of Watchmen, which is you know one of the two issues that Damon Lindelof tells the story of how his father presented him with the first two issues of Watchmen, told him, you are not ready for this. And he read it anyway, and he read it again, and he read it again. And those issues formed the spine of a, you know, a, a holy grail of storytelling for Damon Lindelof that has informed so much of what he's done across his career, not the least of which is now Watchmen. And in this issue, it happens starting in page 13. It spans page 13 to 15. This issue takes place primarily dealing with the comedian's death, his funeral, as uh, some of the the characters who you're going to come to know a lot better over the course of the graphic novel are mourning him or remembering him at least in their own ways. And it's flashing to first memories, like Adrian Veidt remembers his first meeting ever with Edward Blake. Night Owl remembers being off on a mission with Edward Blake. Dr. Manhattan remembers a time when he and the comedian were in Vietnam and Richard Nixon comes to Vietnam and it's 1971 and mission accomplished uh, and the war is over and they're coming home and the comedian who's a very nihilistic terrible human being is talking about how nihilistic and terrible he is and how he cannot wait to get back to America and leave all of this behind and a woman comes to him and Dr. Manhattan being with him this woman comes to him she is pregnant she is pregnant with Edward Blake's child and she is uh, indignant and furious and upset with the comedian for probably just this general awful behavior but specifically because he's saying he's going to leave and he's not going to do anything to help and he's very very cold and callous about it and she attacks him she attacks him with uh, with a broken bottle she slashes him across the face and says I think you'll remember me as long as you live and he responds to that he is scarred for the rest of his life and uh, his face has a has a pretty serious scar for the rest of his life he responds to that attack by shooting the woman and certainly the the comics depiction of events doesn't leave you any real reason to think it goes any other way other than her um, dying immediately from the wound. Dr. Manhattan does not really intervene. He says, Blake, don't 
do it. And like the do it comes after Edward Blake has already shot the woman. Dr. Manhattan's power set is such that if he really, really wanted to, with zero effort whatsoever, he could have just dematerialized the gun. Right. He could have stepped in front of the bullet. He could have caught the bullet. And the comedian calls him out on that. He says, if you really wanted to stop me from doing that, if you were really so disgusted with my actions, you could have. But I've seen you, Dr. Manhattan. You don't care about human life at all. He says, you don't really give a damn about human beings. I've watched you. You're drifting out of touch, Doc. You're turning into a flake. God help us all. And that's what he's saying. That's what the comedian says is his face is bleeding. He's holding his face. He's walking away from the scene of the crime. The next panel is Dr. Manhattan standing over the woman who is on the ground. And then the final panel of the page, page 15 of issue two, is back at the funeral. Dr. Manhattan in the same position. A lot can happen in between panels. And certainly a lot can happen when uh, when several different writers and artists and creative types get into a room and start dreaming up a gigantic squid with which to terrorize <laughs> the world, which is essentially what we're dealing with here with HBO's Watchmen. A hell of a squid, if I do say so myself. And it just strikes me that it is not outside of the realm of possibility that Dr. Manhattan feeling challenged or moved by the smallness of life and the fragility of life chooses to do something about what Edward Blake has just done that you could imagine the scene continuing and either the 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 poor woman is is still alive or he is able to somehow save the child however you would however you would game that out but that could be a character who then grows on to who goes on to become the literal child of the comedian, uh, somebody who is going to inherit the Ozymandias empire, somebody who is going to have access at least to hovercraft technology that is not far outside of the wheelhouse of Night Owl, somebody whose very existence would only be possible thanks to Dr. Manhattan's intervention, and now is somebody who has met Lori Blake, and even if she hadn't met Lori Blake, by virtue of being the comedian's daughter, she would be Lori Blake's sister. So this would be somebody in Lady True who would be really connected to the five main characters of the original Watchmen, except, I guess, for Rorschach. But she's in 7th Cavalry territory right now. So TBD on that certainly could, could emerge. I don't know how much I buy it, but I think at least within the context of Legacy, it's something I'm ruminating on. And it's definitely something that I'm going to be looking out for more and more the more we see from Lady True. We have very limited information about her currently so far. But as far as her potential associations with Dr. Manhattan, she seems to know exactly when she needs to show up at the Clark's house at the beginning right. of this episode with razor precision of you have 10 seconds to to tell me if you're going to sign or not. She's also very moved when she's relating the story about the being told when the Clarks were told uh, that their eggs weren't viable. She says that's bullshit. Right. She, that's like she we see the line delivery there uh, that she is so moved by that. And speaking of being moved by things, I think it's worth ruminating on anyway. But it, it's worth noting that one of the most human moments other than seeing John as the watchmaker's son before he becomes Dr. Manhattan, one of the most human moments in the entire Watchmen graphic novel with Dr. Manhattan is when he uh, watches Lori and observes Lori find out that the comedian is her father. That's a moment that really snaps 
taps John back into a little bit of a touch with uh, with humanity, that he's not just this guy who's distant and on Mars and seeing time in all these ways. When Lori is moved uh, and emotionally taken back by finding out that the comedian is her father, that touches John. And that notice that brings the John out of Dr. Manhattan in, in such a way. So it, it is, I think, a little bit similar to the moment when... Um, he calls comedian, it a thermodynamic miracle. Uh, called as, a thermodynamic miracle, as, right. as Lori Blake mentions in this episode and one of the one of the arguments against like Dr. Manhattan brings Lady True into the world essentially by saving this baby from certain death uh, after after this woman is shot one of the arguments against that is like does that weaken the thermodynamic miracle moment of Dr. Manhattan feeling so moved by Lori and deciding like once he finds out once he sees her reaction to finding out that she's Edward Blake's daughter that this is worth fighting for Earth again this is worth fighting for humanity again but it would connect it even more like it would almost make it even more of a thermodynamic miracle right i mean maybe a little bit less maybe a little bit more um you know a couple degrees of kevin bacon that like he you know he had had a moment like this earlier in his life right like he would have had this moment 15 years earlier in his life where he saved a child where he allowed you know this he he allowed himself to intervene he allowed himself to use his powers to care about this this person who was dying before him and brought them into existence uh, and then seeing Lori blake now uh, or Lori jupiter at the time having such a severe emotional reaction to finding out who her father is john himself could be seeing that moment and realizing oh my god that's the same father of this of this kid i saved right. um so there's there's ways to connect it i think it could be like a, a little bit controversial for people who are like very very ardently you know oh it will be for sure right yeah if if they're very ardent fans of the comic uh, this is a hill many people will die on yeah uh, but is, i mean i think too far, if it's true <laughs> i think a lot a lot of people already at this point of course you know there's there's been plenty of reasons to, to... guess what they should if they don't like the story they yeah, can write think, their own i think yeah write your own i think you probably ought to have tapped out by now but it's something that i'm watching it's something i'm i'm open to the sand in the hourglass that lady true has looked to me like it was blue i don't i, I don't know like i went back and looked at it. it's not not my my screen uh, true rhymes with blue yeah my screen could could <laughs> could use some color adjustment exactly that is definitely yeah. that's probably the deal breaker that's the kobayashi mug for yeah. sure me in the shower the case cracker but i but i i feel like there may be some there there so Certainly worth chewing on. Maybe, maybe something, maybe nothing. But as we're just kind of surveying this mystery person right now, it's just a, a theory to to put into the brain at the moment. And even if, even if the the John uh, or the Doctor Manhattan of the graphic novel, who does seem distant, doesn't seem like the same kind of guy who would have. Maybe he saved Lady True and then wasn't involved in her life uh, throughout her being raised in Vietnam. Or maybe he saved the mother and Lady True was born and, and Doctor Manhattan didn't really play a role. And that's all well and good. Something happened. She was clearly able to get into a position where she was able to take Adrian Veidt's company. Was that with Dr. Manhattan's assistance or not? Was she somehow affected or does she have some kind of special knowledge uh, of the world because of Dr. Manhattan's intervention if she were uh, the product of that? I don't know. It's also possible just from a legacy standpoint. I'm guessing from a flashback-oriented creator that at some point we probably are going to see some level of Vietnam. Uh, we're going to see some history there. And if we 
we do see that, are we going to ultimately see uh, a story with Lady True that doesn't directly connect or share DNA with this moment uh, from the comics from issue two, but it is at least loosely linked in terms of legacy, in terms of our legacy, because clearly that woman in Vietnam was not the only innocent person who was killed uh, yeah. by American forces in Vietnam. Clearly the, the atrocities that we perpetrated on the people over there and that innocent people suffered across the board being over there, they don't just live or die on whether Dr. Manhattan was involved. And what we hear in the story later which I, I certainly interpreted when Lady True's daughter uh, has the nightmare and she wakes up and she's got the IV in her arm and she comes out later and she says to Lady True, I was having a dream about walking through a village. We walked so far, the village was burned. My feet still hurt. Right. Uh, I interpreted those to be Lady True's memories. Yeah. Uh, and if those are Lady True's memories, they're being transmitted in some way, maybe via some of Lady True's pharmaceutical technology to her daughter through an IV. It sounds like with the pills, that that is what Will Reeves wants to do in some way with Angela, that he wants her to find out who she is. Uh, Lady True says the pills are a passive-aggressive exposition and too cute by half, and Will Reeves says, is that why you're doing the same thing to your daughter? So that's the link there, I think, to that moment, uh, because Lady True's happy that her daughter had that nightmare. She says good when it's all said and done. So to me, I do think that's what's happening. So if those are Lady True's memories, they don't have to be directly linked to Dr. Man Manhattan to have the emotional power of our legacy and our connection to Vietnam and the connection this story has to it. But she certainly, Lady True, seems to have those memories in her. Or maybe they're being shared from Lady True's mother. Um, maybe Lady True was able to capture those at some point. And like Will Rees with his pills, these are going to be memories that are connected in a, in a much deeper generation, not just Lady True's generation. So TBD, I suppose. But I do think that that's what the connection is there. They're either her memories or they're her mother's memories. And they're certainly directly linked to that era when the comedian and Dr. Manhattan were there. So the legacy is going to be front of mind, even if it's not the direct legacy from those specific panels in issue two. I think it's definitely worth ruminating on for that reason, because we do have that connection overall, generally speaking. And I, I think that's the same or similar to what's going on here uh, with the Will Reeves story, of course. We don't get much Will Reeves in this episode, but if you go back and you think about Will Reeves from the first episode, when we see the Greenwood sequence and everything that was happening in 1921, and now we're linking that with the uh, the acorn and everything that happens with Angela uh, and, and learning the family tree here in this episode, um, those atrocities don't have to be directly real people. Now, they will be linked to Angela, but we see, I think some of the more powerful moments with those are when Angela's, for example, walking through and we have the hologram of the firefighter or we have the woman there. We just hear people that were having a normal day before all of this happened and then she walks through people in clan masks. So this legacy is real and it is in our DNA directly in Angela's case with Will Reeves, but it's in our DNA as a people and as a country. And so it doesn't have to be from issue two for it to be powerful, in my opinion. Just to stay on Angela and to talk through some of what she goes through in this episode, and it'll link us back to Lady True eventually, at the very least. So much has already been said about how fantastic Regina King is period end of sentence so much has already been said about how fantastic regina king is as angela abar on watchman period end of sentence but so much still needs to be said about those things especially in this scene where she goes to the ancestry and there's just this look of um because she's so tough so often she's so powerful she's somebody who could knock you out with you know one punch 
But she's then, got her costume on. You know, she's got she's in full sister she's night mode. Armor. You know, she's broken into the to the right. cultural center. She's called it in in a way that's uh, you know bending the rules. But I, I for the life of me, I my breath hasn't been taken away by a line read the way when when the voice is asking her if she wants to know more about her ancestors and she just says, yeah, okay. Like there's just like a way she kind of like chokes on the words. Like she's caught off guard at how much she does want those answers at how much she does want that. Even though where she ultimately lands with it in the space of this scene is, you know, looking at the, at the, the, the young child version of her grandfather will and saying, you're not dead. You disappeared a hundred years from now. You're going to roll back into Tulsa and blow my life up and then disappear again. You said you wanted me to know where I came from. Now I know. So wherever you are, leave me the F alone. Like very harsh things, but very like pained things to say. And so much I think is revealed in that moment where she does say like, yeah, I want to know. Um, Definitely. I just, I'm, I'm loving, I'm loving her work on this show. Sister Knight is such an excellent character. And there's a lot of really great characters and dynamic people on this show. And episode three was a really great episode, especially as somebody who wanted to see some of these characters from Watchmen in more of like their what happened to them after Watchmen context. But I'm so glad that we spent so much of this episode refocusing on the person who is clearly the heart of this ensemble. Uh, and that is Regina King as Angela Abar, aka Sister Knight. Definitely. And you're, I think, right to observe that the nuance in the performance of Regina King is so strong. There is that great shot when she's by the ancestry where she crouches and her face aligns with young Will's. And young Will is just a little boy there. And so seeing that little boy and seeing his parents and finding out that you're directly connected to this awful massacre has to be a kind of moment that blows Angela over. And as you say, she sort of hunches her back up a little bit and says what she says about Will in that moment. But later she admits to Cal, like she's kind of operating without a net here. She's flying blind to an extent. Uh, She's kind of making it up as she goes along. So she was at the cultural center. Why? Because she's just kind of doing what she feels is right to do in the moment. Blowing my world up, I think, is a very accurate representation of what happened, even though there was not a literal explosion with Will Reeves yet. Maybe there will be at some point. It sounds like three days. Tick tock, tick tock. Pretty ominous. Um, There was certainly a metaphorical one when he did blow her life up, uh, that she had a grandfather. Her father never told him about him. We know her parents were killed now. We find out when she was very young. How that happened, we don't know. But all of this has to be very moving and very upsetting for her. And it all is cast against the backdrop of losing Judd, of losing her mentor in the last several years, and of not really knowing what's going on, finding the KKK robe in his closet, having all of that be front of mind. This is not an easy time in the life of Angela Abar. And this is a person who seemingly has seen some shit. So for her to be where she is right now and, and in the place she's in right now, it's definitely very difficult. Regina King is capturing every inch of that nuance in a fantastic performance. So like you said, really good stuff that's going on. She's never going to get that bakery open, Josh. Oh, absolutely not. But we'll have to let Saigons <laughs> be Saigons on that front. Oh, she's got, I like it. She's got more important things uh, to do, like chasing down Lube Man? 
What the hell? Why didn't lube we lead with man? Lube Man? I mean, what the heck? as Red Scare anoints this guy, <laughs> Lube Man, this lube man, man in this top to bottom, like silverish outfit. Uh, he looks like the gimp from Pulp Fiction. Except, yeah, the uh, mouth is visible. Except he bleached the costume, running through Tulsa, this tall, lanky guy who can who squirts himself with some kind of oil and can slide down into the sewer system in what is one of the biggest WTF moments I've seen from this show so far and certainly that I've seen from any show in 2019 so far. Yes. So weird, man. <laughs> She's never seen Lube Man before. Yes. Nobody seems to have. You are just immediately wondering, is Lube Man somebody who's new to town? The only person I can think of who's new to town that's tall and lanky like that and seems to really like masked vigilantes is Agent Petey. Right. He would definitely be suspect number one if you're asking me who I think Lube Man is. It's got to be Petey. I feel pretty good about that, too. I think Petey being Lube Man is really funny because you could just imagine like how that plays out later on down the line when he's outed as Lube Man, I think is a, a very fun scene. Uh, certainly if he's like harmless i hope he's harmless i hope pd's on the level i really like the character and i like the idea of like he's this superhero historian right who who knows so much about it. he's very thorough in his research he knows that he's going to tulsa he's must have had ideas in his head about well if i ever were to get in the game what would i do so he's got lube man in his back pocket ready to go <laughs> uh he even already Hopefully he's got the lube in a briefcase yeah. uh, much like Lori brought her own product well, he's uh, got maybe. it he's got it harnessed at the very very least uh he's got it in the saddle but like he even like has has the ability to to potentially try and throw Lori off of it a little bit by having the lone ranger mask be like, see this is my alter yeah. ego oh yeah i'm definitely me. not also lube man um <laughs> <laughs> unless uh you know the silver slider the silver slider <laughs> indeed unbelievable uh so yeah, i think that pd is the is the best possible candidate is the one that makes the most sense from a story level and is also the most fun to imagine that that's PD. I think it's just so great and delightful that you really, really hope that it is. And Any again, other suspects in your mind who it could be? Well, yeah, so there there are a couple, but none that are maybe one that is that it, that competes with PD. That's competing, uh, competing with PD. Uh, Competipedia. Whoever it is, see, you see enough of their facial features that you can you can tell they're, they're, they're like a taller lanky white dude i don't think that senator keen i don't i don't think uh he's he's not lanky enough i think he's a little more cut but he's somebody who i would think about but i also he does not strike me as the kind of guy who's going to throw himself down the sewers he's going to have silver sliders to deploy he's not going to have to get into the into the regalia himself yeah something's up with that guy but i'm not putting him in a silver i agree suit. i yeah, agree he's, he's he's dirty but not maybe not sewer dirty so could be keen do not think so. I also thought maybe like, could it be? Could it be Looking Glass? Looking Glass just got the pills from Angela, so she's hooking him in closer to what it is she's investigating, and it's you know not inconspicuous for him to be going out there with the uh, reflective mask on. That's a pretty signature look. Yeah. So does he have like a backup costume? But I don't know. Like masks on masks on masks. I think is gonna it's like be a hat a, on a hat. It's a hat on a hat, and I don't think you need a hat on a hat nor on a cat. Um, I still think PD is just the best. But the other one who would make some measure of sense to me insofar as anything involving this character makes sense would be Phillips. 
It could be a Mr. Phillips. Could be ah, Mr. Phillips. Could be you know we don't know exactly yet how everything going on with Adrian Veidt and in his own little bubble is connecting to everything else on the show. Would it be out of the realm of possibility that there are Phillipses and Crookshankses in the greater world of Watchmen? Indeed, even in Tulsa. Indeed, even slipping and sliding around as the Silver Slider. It's possible. I'd like to. The the good thing is, uh, I think that Damon Lindelof has confirmed in interviews, including maybe on his own podcast, uh, HBO's official Watchmen podcast, that the Adrian Veidt story is is at some point going to connect to the story that right. we're seeing. It's not going to be just its own little tale that's told throughout the course of this season. It will connect in some way. So if it will connect in some way, will it connect in this way? Like, is there a way? Is he firing Phillipses into the sky? <laughs> and are they landing? And, and was that, was that Josh, what landed on the Clark farm? Right. Was that it Phillips? Could be, could be, yeah. could be. That could the be silver the slider. Uh, that's uh, a great, that's a great call, in fact. I think that that's a good theory. It's been, Catapulted you know. through the sky. Now he belongs to Lady True. And of course he's uh, tailing Angela. Like, that makes the most sense. Yeah. Wants three, to see if she's taking those pills. Three, two, one away. I think whoever the silver slider is, by the level of surprise that this man registers, even on his relatively expressionless face, I think a level of surprise registers. That indicates to me that whoever is behind that mask is not great. <laughs> Right. At, at costumed adventuring. No. Uh, so that would apply to a Phillips who we know is a little bit of a dimwit, is not an intelligent creature, at least to Adrian Veidt's specifications. And I think that that's worth starting to talk about in a little while here as well, what was revealed in the Veidt storyline this week. Uh, and not that Petey isn't a very smart guy. It seems like he is. But it's it's just as it would be one thing to podcast about a show and a completely different thing to write the show, I think yeah. it's one one thing to be a historian, a superhero historian, and then a completely different thing to try and be a superhero yourself. So you can imagine, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the theoreticals that PD is applying to the practice, uh, maybe not panning out the way that he had imagined. So I'm team PD is the silver slider for sure. I think that that's an incredible call. And I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of, a, of an answer that's going to be more satisfying than that. It'll be great if Sister Knight does catch him, too, because <laughs> yeah. she's just going to bust his chops so hard. Uh, and Lori, the Disappointment with Laurie will be great too. It will be glorious. Unless like she's deployed him is not impossible. Like tail Angela. I'm suspicious of Angela. Go keep eyes on Angela. Interesting. If you really want to get your masked adventuring on, here's your chance, Petey. Like, I mean, like there's there's like versions of that that you can imagine playing out, especially as we see in this episode, Lori is filling in for Judd, right? Like she's in charge of Tulsa PD right now. She's sitting in the man's desk in his chair. It's not going over great with uh with the rest of the folks at the station right and what of course that uh, the silver slider observed what lube man observed was angela throwing away the evidence throwing away the evidence of will reeves wheelchair which by the way is something that laurie is highly interested in right she wanted to know who called she talked went and talked to cal and wanted to know who called the night that angela went uh, and left and the night that crawford's body was eventually found she wanted to know uh, she's already found the wheelchair tracks she found will reeves prince in angela's car so she's all over this and she's all over the details the idea that angela would be caught with that wheelchair that she destroyed and threw away the very wheelchair that was linked to the death scene 
would be extremely significant. Now, I don't think the silver slider would have been able to obtain that evidence. It looked like it was driving away, but he at least saw her throwing something onto some kind of truck uh, from the overpass, maybe a garbage truck. So that is, uh, if, if you're saying maybe Lori was involved, um, that could be a key element of this for sure. I like the idea of Phillips, though, because I really, something insane is going on with Adrian Veidt. We say this week to week, and it is crazy that on an episode with Adrian Veidt literally pulling babies, like 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 nascent or just like newborn children clones out of a, a moonlit lake, <laughs> wherever he He's is. He's literally like fishing for fetuses. Fishing for fetuses that the loop man sailing into the, uh, the, the sewer is somehow crazy. Uh, but it is. Uh, this is insane, though. This fishing for fetuses is insane. Crab traps. I don't know why he decides to throw certain ones back. That is very dark and very upsetting to watch happen, obviously, as is the whole process. Thankfully, we don't see all of it, where he brings a couple of them home and puts them in an incubator, spins them around, and we hear horrible noises as he's just sort of orchestrating to the music and eating his honeycomb cake uh, and out emerge. Um, the bee's knees. What do you it's, it's, it's good the stuff. bees' knees out emerge uh, ultimately in their birthday suits uh, because it is their birthday. A Crookshanks and a Phillips, and this is they they can't talk. They have no knowledge yet. But Adrian Veidt reveals some key details here. He says like I am not your creator, and he basically says you're a flaw. He describes them as a flaw in this uh, and, thoughtless design. Like the in design this thoughtless, is thoughtless design. Yeah, yes. he's critic he's criticizing whatever. So the seemingly the world he's in is designed by someone. Uh, he's critical of it because of course he's the smartest man in the world and he would have designed this differently and he never would have put these people in it but here we are he's dealing with them he finds them he's bringing them back to life josh he's bringing them back to life in part because there's a room full of dead b-o-d-y-s yes he had a rough night uh is, <laughs> is his excuse he had a sister night yes he had a rough sister night he's there's just like slaughtered bodies everywhere b-o-d-i-e-s you, you see you obviously. see the yes obviously lost shout out uh, right. you, you see the fourth candle in the honeycomb cake. He's going to say later as he's catapulting dead Phillips and Crookshanks into the air. Uh, four years. Another lost reference. Four, num is it, four is the magic number. Four years since I was sent here. In the beginning, I thought it was a paradise, but it's not. It's a prison. So wherever he is, at first, he thought it wasn't so bad. And I think that tracks with when you go back and you think yeah. of the first scene. He's having fun. He's writing plays. He's writing plays. He's getting massages. He's doing yoga. He's, he's riding tomatoes. horses. Right. You know, homegrown tomatoes. Beautiful. Uh, even year two, he's pretty thrilled at the prospect of his play finally going into production, getting real tears from Crookshanks, reliving the the, the glory days of, of Dr. Manhattan seems to trigger something in him, seems to inspire something in him, seems to give him an idea. Maybe that's where he gets this glimmer of hope to, to get get out of here to escape and he spends you know that's when he says it's only just begun then he spends what you imagine is the next year building that armor <laughs> that we see him deploy in episode three and that doesn't work so well and he's not getting the proper materials because the game warden is being very strict about where adrian is allowed to go and now here we are presumably a year on from that moment 
And things just have not advanced so well. Like last we saw him in episode three, he's putting on the Ozymandias costume. He's looking himself in the mirror like, yeah, you're the man. You're the guy. You're going to go do your Ozymandias thing. This is going to be fine. But when we see him in episode four, he's at the lowest of lows that we have possibly seen. So this past year has not been kind to him. So he thought it was a paradise. He thinks it's a thoughtless design. The, he, he says it's a prison. You know, it's it's very easy to think that like he's been trapped here. Somebody put him here. Maybe he agreed to come here. Maybe he thought that he had signed on to a retirement plan, something like that. Uh, Could it have been his own escape plan? Was this something that he specifically wanted? Could he have designed this place? He just didn't think it through. That does not feel very Ozymandias to me. It doesn't feel very similar to the character that Damon Lindelof, who who has expressed this, was obsessed with as a kid, loves from this comic book, his favorite character from the comic book. I think somehow getting trapped or agreeing to something that he didn't fully see through maybe makes a little bit more sense but either way this is just a level of frustration with this character that we have never seen from him before this is a guy who can catch bullets out of thin air and like he is you know creating impressive stuff with the resources he has but the level of fury that he is exhibiting in this episode with the with literally just the the piles of bodies that he now has at his disposal what he says to them he says by your hand with your eyes with your broken mangled bodies one way or another i will escape this godforsaken place i mean this is this is a this is an insane person if he wasn't already an insane person for dropping a squid in the middle of new york this man is thoroughly nuts Right. He's going to need some good luck at some point. He doesn't need the horseshoe yet. Not yet. Right. But he's going to. He slaughtered an entire room of these clones. He had a bad night. And you you just wonder what prompted that. And you're right. He's just (laughs) firing these bodies just into nowhere. I mean, I guess it's space that he's firing them into based on what happened with poor Phillips last week when he came back all frozen up. But I don't know. You said uh, Adrian Veidt's little bubble, and I think that's an accurate way to describe where he might be. It does seem like he's in some kind of prison somewhere right. uh, that theoretically when you go past just the, the basic line of the atmosphere, you end up in space. So I, I'd have to look into the sky. I mean, I'm sure we will get answers on this at some point. But yeah, he's he's in a bad place and he needs some help. He says, with your bodies, I will escape this godforsaken place. But then he's firing the bodies into space. So I don't know if he's trying to create enough space junk that someone will notice. Uh, is he like trying to, maybe that, like I said, maybe it's not the body that's directly falling onto the Clark property, but maybe that's what he's trying to do. Maybe he's on the moon, and the reason I say that, of course, is the way we enter his shot is we, we sort of look up at the moon, uh, and then we're there, or, right. or either that or we pull away, but it's directly linked to the moon there. So I don't know if the overt implication is that he might be in some sort of prison on the moon, but if you if he is, and if it's not his design, the, the amount of characters that could make something like that, it seems pretty limited to Dr. Manhattan. Maybe Lady True is able to do this we don't know right now i mean she would obviously be a suspect considering she then took over his company if she took over his company indeed because she deposed him in some way and put him out to to pasture in this 
paradise that ended up being a prison. Uh, but it seems like she and Dr. Manhattan are the only two people we could think of that could have created this if this is indeed some sort of simulation or bubble that he's living in, um, that it does seem like uh, that there that there is it's some kind of sandbox that he's living in uh, where tomatoes can grow on trees and where clone babies are in like uh, in lakes. It, it seems like it's some kind of sandbox. Who could have created it? I really think only those two. So I guess TBD where he ends up. But yeah, he's he's at the end of his rope, uh, quite literally, and not Phillips at the end of his rope. <laughs> uh, the one interesting yeah. thing to me is that right before we get to the Veidt scene, when we're looking at that statue of Adrian Veidt, in the Vietnam Favarium, when Laurie Blake remarks that he looks like shit and he looks so old, Lady True uses the present tense and says he is old. She doesn't say he was old, which we know in the course of the show that Adrian Veidt is presumed dead. She uses the present tense is old as though she's sure that he is presently is old. Uh, and that's the part where I'm wondering, does she know something more? Uh, and is that therefore why she says is instead of was? So TBD on that. But I, I didn't want to let that go without mentioning it. There are a few other quick hits here, unless you have anything else about Vite. No, uh, only other thing that I really wanted to add was uh, you actually just brought us back to it is Lady True saying he is old. And I would just love to spend a second in that scene and how awesome that moment is where she says, oh, well, there's an old saying from my childhood. Yes. And then she speaks Vietnamese to Angela, knowing that Angela will understand what she's about to say. And it's a coded message. And Angela is able to, to speak back, both of them, like in the queer presence of Laurie Blake. You know, what I love about it is obviously like that's just it's very pulpy and cool. Like it's a it's a it's a just like just a very cool moment. But I think it speaks so much to the intelligence of everybody in that room. It's a very clever thing for Lady True to do. It's a very uh, like hardened, serious response from Angela, who doesn't blow her cover, who now no knows something more than Lori knows. And I think it speaks to, to Lori's intelligence, too, in that, like, it's very hard to get one over on Lori Blake. So for for them to have to like kind of like embark on like this like very secret public conversation, you know, like that's the way that you have to outfox the artist formerly known as Silk Spectre. So I just I loved that moment. I thought that that was a really really clever scene. And Dracaris, like it's at least possible that Lori Blake can herself speak Vietnamese. Totally, absolutely. We don't know exactly what happened when she was the comedian, if you want to say that she was, in the time period when she and Dan were avenging around. Uh, or if her link to the comedian, her father, means that at some point uh, she connected to Vietnam. It is an, another state of the United States. So at least the opportunities would be there. It's entirely possible that she does speak it. I think you're right about Lady True being on top of things and probably knowing that she can't and knowing that Angela could, but it's at least possible. I think that Lori can speak Vietnamese. Uh, we know she asked questions about Vietnam. She certainly had some questions for Cal, uh, which is something I wanted to get through before we finished up with the podcast. Angela and Cal met in Vietnam. It seems like that is revealed here. Angela is upset, of course, that Lori has questioned Cal when Angela was not there, and she's bracing Cal a little bit. Cal is reading, Josh. What book is he reading here? He's reading Things Fall Apart, which is uh, the same novel that this episode gets its title from. No, it's not just Damon Lindelof shouting at the angry Watchmen fans. If you don't like my story, write your own. Uh, it is a line directly from... I hope it's from, at least 25%. I, I'm sure that, it, like many things, it is serving multiple purposes. But that's a line from that novel. That novel has a a huge place in our, our timeline, not just in the timeline of this show, uh, but in our 
our timeline and our world as well as being a significant piece of African literature in the English language. Uh, Angela spoils it and says that, that a character hangs himself in it. And of course, the connection to Judd, we, we know a character was hung. Whether or not that is going to be as overt or not, we don't know. Right. But at least the title comes from that novel. And Angela spoils the novel because she's, she's ginning up for a fight, which she says, like, I'm looking for a fight. And Cal says, I know. But what we find out is that Angela and Cal met in Vietnam, and Angela asks Cal, did you tell Lori about your accident? And Cal did not, and Angela think that thinks that is good. Cal also supposedly hates lying, and yet we do see him have no problem, and I'm not saying this is a lie, but maybe this is part of his hates lying thing. Earlier in the episode, when their daughters ask about if Uncle Judd is in heaven, and there's a fight between Topher and his sisters over whether Uncle Judd is in heaven or not, Cal says heaven's not real, Josh. Yeah, he settles the matter. <laughs> heaven's not yeah. real. Before he was born, he was nowhere. Then he was born. Then he lived. Then he died. Now he's nowhere again. And Angel's like, nowhere? <laughs> and he's like, what? You know, that's the truth. Who wants waffles? Me! <laughs> Which is <laughs> just a great moment. It's just so good. So we got we're getting a lot of Cal. We're getting a, we we had speculated earlier that there may be something up with Cal. He goes missing right in the moment uh, when we see the flashback to the White Knight. We don't know how he escaped harm and danger in that moment. Um, there are other moments throughout that are just a little bit that seemingly like there's something maybe going on with Cal. It seems like Angela is in charge here. We don't know what his accident was. We don't know why he hates lying. What do you think might be going on? What are some possibilities? with Cal here. Really, really hard to say. Like, if we have a limited amount of information about Lady True, I, I almost feel like we have even less to go on with Cal other than he loves Angela. He survived the White Knight. We don't know how. We don't know how he survived the White Knight. That seems like a key detail that's missing. How Angela was shot and she wakes up in the hospital. Uh, we don't know what happened between the shooting and her waking up. We know he doesn't like lying very much. We know he does not believe very much in any kind of an afterlife. We can assume, based on his actions, that he very much loves Angela and is an incredibly supportive uh, member of the family unit. But he's not so far like a very drawn out character beyond that. And that ju it just does make me think about some of the characters who were really important in the grand scheme of Watchmen, but maybe didn't seem very important right away. Adrian Veidt would fit that bill. I don't know how you get like Cal Abar into being somebody who's like so deeply and thoroughly involved in the vast and insidious conspiracy at the heart of the HBO adaptation of events, but it's not impossible. I'd be very sad about that. I don't know that I would love it. I'd, I'd, I'd have to be convinced. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would in terms of like how that connects. But at this point, we just don't know enough about him beyond performance. And on that scale... In the closet, uh, you mean? <laughs> the closet apparently is uh, the room where it happens, uh, is, is what we've heard. No, but I think Yahya Abdul-Mateen III, he's, uh, he's playing Cal, I ironically somebody with some masked experience coming into Watchmen, having played Black Manta in Aquaman. He's going to be in the reboot of The Matrix and The Matrix 4. This is somebody who can, who can hold his own in the genre, and here he is, he's playing just like really like a solid, reliable guy, and I, I really like him. Like, I really love Angela and Cal, and I really love seeing this dynamic. I think, you know, sadly, this is not the dynamic that you typically see in a 
a genre story like this where it's the matriarch of the family who's the superhero and the patriarch who is like the supporting husband who's like, yeah, whatever you need, I'm here for it. I love that dynamic. Certainly rings a lot more true to my marriage. <laughs> my wife is definitely <laughs> the superhero and I am not. So I've seen her nun outfit. It's great. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I love that and I, and I hope that that holds true. And I know in speaking with Regina King about this project in, in our interview that uh, that I posted a couple weeks back now on THR.com slash Watchmen, she talked about how Cal is like the one person she can be really true around, that she can be herself around. Uh, you know, everybody's got that one reliable, solid person. And I hope that that stays true for Angela Abar. I'm concerned that it won't. I am too, and I'm concerned about whatever this accident is. If we go to the graphic novel, the main accident that we see is the accident that creates Dr. Manhattan. I, I don't know that Cal is obviously a big blue man who lives on Mars. Cal has talked about with Angela about Dr. Manhattan. We, we know he's on Mars. We know he can't take human skin. It is uh, at least on some level a little bit interesting, and uh, if there would be some connection between Cal and Dr. Manhattan, that's something I think that would be a, a, a cool connection between Lori and Angela as well, obviously, if there was that connection there. It is a little bit in this episode where Lori is talking about her ex, and then she says he's no Cal. I'm not saying Cal is Dr. Manhattan, but when you talk about accidents, that's the only accident I can think of from the graphic novel. So I wonder what kind of accident befell Cal. I wonder if he acquired any sort of uh, seeming powers or anything as a result of that accident, a common superhero origin story. Or I, I wonder why that has to be hidden. Like, like I wonder why Angela was glad that she didn't tell uh, Laurie or why it was even possible that he might tell Laurie. I mean, if you're talking about a hidden superhero story, it doesn't seem likely that he might tell Laurie. But again, this guy hates lying. And the kind of person that hates lying, and that's an ethos that we're putting forward for this character, we're going to get more about this guy. I think it's just a matter of when, uh, not if. I, I just, um, I'm, I'm, that's something I wanted to plant a flag on that we, we wanted to talk about before we get it wrapped up here. Another thing I wanted to plant a flag on, Will Reeves is mentioned by Lori here in this episode as somebody who was a New York City cop in the 40s and 50s. The supplemental materials on PDPedia from last episode make clear, uh, and I think the, the original graphic novel makes clear, uh, if it's not clear enough, that Hooded Justice was active in New York around the same time. So you can, as we have, I think, talked about a little bit on this podcast already, you can foresee a scenario. Uh, it's, I, I don't think it's hidden. Um, it, it's hidden very deeply, in fact, if it's going to come to pass that Will Reeves ends up being Hooded Justice. So we talked about how Hooded Justice's monologue, even in in the done-up American hero story uh, spoke to the kind of thing we could see resonating with a young Will Reeves. Uh, so there may be some kind of connection there. It's also interesting from that level, by the way, when Hooded Justice is referenced as in the PDPedia materials from last week's episode as maybe somebody who had Nazi sympathies or a German sympathies. We talked about how the young Will Reeves might have read that German propaganda note a ton of times and maybe would have gone to Germany at some point. And if that were the case, uh, maybe Maybe you could connect the Hooded Justice connections to Germany there as well. If that's in his DNA, I don't know. Um, it does seem like the show is building in a way for us to learn that with these pills. And it seems like, at least from that conversation with Lady True and Will, 
at the end of the episode where Lady True says these are just passive aggressive exposition and too cute by half speaking of meta things and when he says is that why you're doing the same thing to your daughter uh, it seems like maybe that's what uh, I think I think maybe it seems like Will Reeves wants Angela to take one of these pills or some of these pills and end up being able to understand everything that uh, that the gaps are going to get filled in there so it wouldn't surprise me if we were able to find that out at some point maybe we'll find it out another way though because Looking Glass was in this episode, Josh. Even if it was only for one scene, he apparently has an ex. Can can this be Lady True? It's oh, not possible. No, right? that would be that would be hard for me to imagine. It's yeah. it's not possible. No, I mean, unless, because whoever the look, ex is, it seems like Angela knows who that is, and I think right. that the the level to like she could have just gone to Lady True, and even even so, like after that Lady True conversation where Lady True says your grandfather wants to know if you got the pills. At that point, you know Angela pages <laughs> pages way and says abort don't she knows she knows you know? <laughs> yeah but who who is his ex she's only discussed here I, i'm sure we will find out at some point but the pills that are are there are given to lg to try to find some way to be tested but she also goes to looking glass lg angela does to say like hey judd i found this in his closet what do you think and looking glass says like he was a white man in oklahoma as himself a white man in oklahoma uh, the Implication is that white men in Oklahoma are racist just at a baseline level or that it shouldn't be that surprising, I guess, is the implication from LG's voice or from his mouth there. Himself a white man, as I'm saying. So I, I don't know if he knows more about what's going on. Uh, the fact that she leaves the robe there at his house with him does seem like maybe don't put that thing in my house. I don't want that here either. He seems to suggest the robe belonged to Judd Crawford's grandfather, which I think was also sub, uh, supported by the PDP materials from last week wasn't there one called four letters right and in it it seems like it is being uh there seems like there is some pretty overt uh kkk connections between judd's father and senator Keene's father who is the the person who enacts the Keene act in the comic book that outlaws vigilantism i think that i'm connecting that right i think that seems right so that's interesting definitely and in it's directly connected with the painting that we saw with the the second episode title so there are all these things in this pdpedia materials that do influence what we're seeing on screen and do enhance it and in, and in some cases i think speak to things we might find out later so as we keep saying certainly well worth investigating speaking of well worth investigating one real final thing here josh we haven't really talked about it a ton over the course of this podcast but it is something that we can no longer ignore eggs what the hell is going on with all the there's eggs? there's so many eggs and they have been baked into watchmen from baked eggs mm. from, from the That's start of this series you see angela working with eggs creating a smiley face with a little bloody streak in one of the yolks in her very first appearance in the entire show you see will will reeves is boiling eggs at the end of episode two he flies away to the tune of eggman <laughs> there's, there's <laughs> the egg, he is the eggman the beastie boys are, are egging out as he is flying away i'm trying to remember if there is an overt egg reference in episode three but there's a lot of them here in episode four at the very least whether it is the title card whether it's watchmen hatching like a chicken a baby chick being born into the world from a from a tiny little shell to poor mrs clark spilling her eggs all over the front porch to the idea of uh, your your eggs not being fertile that lady true presents to the eggs that are being used to make the waffles uh that angela and cow 
Roadhouse kids are so eager to eat that they have forgotten that heaven doesn't exist. You know, it's it's very, very, very here. And if legacy is very, very here, and if something akin to clones or at least like little baby embryo things that you can fish out of the out of the water in Adrian Veidt so world. Disturbing. What is this all connecting? And and so I, I wonder about this. I wonder what the eggs are meant to represent. I think it's something that we'll be able to crack in deeper detail the further into the show we go. But they are absolutely everywhere. And I, as I have mentioned already a couple of times now, I'm, I'm very trained to keep an eye out for eggs on anything because my wife, the great Emily Fox, is allergic to eggs. And she also grew up raising chickens. So she knows what a good and healthy egg looks like. The more orange the yolk, the better, the healthier the chicken. These yolks on the show are fairly yellowish, but I think that that's more in line with the Watchmen color. So you can forgive it ultimately. But why are they here? Why are they here and why is there so much about legacy and why is there a veritable army of Phillipses and Crookshankses and a river, a a lake filled with little babies as well? You just got to wonder where this all is going. Legacy, for sure. There's definitely something going on. And it is, uh, I mean, even Will Reeves pulling the eggs out of boiling water in the second episode and the eggs from the Clark family on down to Cal and Angela making breakfast with eggs and Angela and her cookies, all the examples that you've cited they're all there, and it is definitely consistent enough through four episodes of this show that it can no longer be ignored. There are little hints throughout, of course, the graphic novel about their little visual cues in many ways about what we might be seeing, whether it's something underneath a, uh, a, a, a tarp or whether it's a painting of something that we see. We see things in, in some hint form before we see them in their final form. So we could be approaching something where eggs are going to play a much more significant role, and maybe that's what's going to go tick-tock, tick-tock, as you're saying, uh, in three days. We don't really know, but the eggs have been there throughout. Uh, and at this point, you, like we said, one's a... One, one is a thing, two is a pattern, or three or whatever. Like three is a pattern at this point. Like we've seen enough eggs in this show that we can't ignore it. So we didn't. And we're going to talk. We talked about it here. We're on egg alert even more so than you normally are with Emily Fox. And I'm on lawyer alert, honestly, Josh. I want to try to invalidate that contract that Lady True had been signed. <laughs> yeah, you want to help so out the Clarks. Easy, so yeah. easy to invalidate it. They were under duress. Whatever Phillips or Dr. Manhattan or space junk that fell on their property, I want it to belong to them. It's clearly worth more than $5 million to Lady True. Right. So it must be something significant. That contract was signed under duress. It would never stand up. Yeah, but I mean, if Lady True is connected to Dr. Manhattan somehow, and if Dr. Manhattan, who basically exists at any point in time, can see into the future, knows where he, you know, feels 30 years ago as if it were right now, could he say to Lady True, you will be at this place at this exact time and you're going to buy this piece of property because that's what's always happened and it's happening right now. And so she knows that that is where she needs to go. That's how time works for someone as powerful as Dr. Manhattan. Is that how she knows to go to the Clark's family property at the start of this episode just makes you wonder what did that what did you make of the transition between the Clark farm and Greenwood there after that meteorite fell I'm just recalling right now Uh, was it just a you think it was just a dramatic flare it wasn't meant to say that this farm becomes Greenwood or is no I don't think so yeah I think that that's taking place now uh, or at least now ish 
you know, relatively close to the now. I don't think that that like is meant to be like that piece of property turns right. into into like the downtown Greenwood that we see so prominently. Lady True the show. looks the same age. Her daughter looks the same age. Right. I don't think they are ageless wonders. I think right. it's taking place around the same time. I thought that it was a great transition. It's a very cool transition, and it could be as simple as that. Or the other thing that I was thinking is like if there is more of an overt Doctor Manhattan connection between Lady True and Doctor Manhattan. You know, we're now transitioning to the site of where we last left off on Watch of the middle of town with one of those watchmen uh, with one of those manhattan phone booths that laurie was was using through so much of the episode so is it just like a subtle way of connecting the two characters i think it's a little thin i think ultimately for me it's just a really cool shot one of just a visual flourish one one of many really really uh great pieces of imagery throughout this episode you know another one that i really like is when sister knight is gearing up to throw the shaved down wheelchair into the trash uh off the bridge you know she's getting all all suited up and it's that's all happening really really quickly she gets to her car she closes the trunk and the angle's just like it doesn't change at all we're just from night to day it's broad daylight now and she lifts the trunk up and that's it's just seamless and it's just beautifully beautifully shot again just can't say enough about the direction in this episode uh just really really masterful job by andre parek who did such a good job shooting the the first episode of this uh of this series uh and clearly has a great understanding of the visual sensibilities at play here in Watchmen and just generally definitely and i the, the not just the way that the episode was constructed but the beginning the music uh islands in the stream as good as it gets but then irma thomas time is on my side also as good as it gets at the end that show now has been in like at least three hbo shows by my count that song time is on my side and it was in the sopranos and it was in treme and now it's in Watchmen. so it is a good old standby for hbo perfectly used here Just a couple quick things from my notebook. Uh, Lady True really likes elephants. Her timer has them. Her coffee mugs have them. Could be something, could be nothing, but definitely something that jumped out to me. Speaking of something that could be something, could be nothing that jumped out to me, when we see Angela's family tree with Will Reeves, what we don't see was the other little baby that was with Will Reeves uh, when he emerged from Greenwood and walked away at night uh, with the town burning behind him and the car having wrecked uh, and him walking away carrying a baby. I'm not sure if that baby was meant to be a sibling of his at that point or not, uh, but that baby did not show up on the family tree. So it could speak to erasure, the kind of thing where uh, we don't even have records of the thing we don't have records of for so many people and so many uh, cultures that were just erased. Or it could be something else, but there's no sign of that baby on the family tree there, uh, and I I wasn't sure why. I guess that could be something we find out, or it might not be. It could be, like I said, the erasure thing. I love the scene where Lori notices Angela in full Sister Night costume and says, hey, cool costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, she hates mass vigilantes. So uh, Angela has a little problem with her secret identity in this episode. Lori immediately notices it, obviously. The senator also knows Josh, and I don't know if this is something that will come back. He encounters Sister Knight in the police station, refers to her as Angela. His aides are right there behind him. Uh, I, if I'm Sister Knight, I wouldn't want all these people knowing who I was. That's sort of the point of wearing the costume and wearing the mask. So a kind of an uncomfortable moment there 
for sure that the senator knows who Angela is in Sister Night. Uh, and then finally, LG, uh, he's an amateur photographer, Josh. Uh, when it rains, the squid, he likes to go up above ground and just take their pictures right before they die. And what does he say about the squids? He says, like, oh, these poor poor bastards have 30 seconds of life and they're dying the whole time. Yeah. Uh, what a sad existence for the squids. Yeah, or the people uh, who we have more time, but it's the same story. So LG has an interesting outlook on life. I love the way that Tim Blake Nelson delivers uh, the lines. It's just, it's so fantastic. He's excellent. Uh, he's excellent. He's incredible. So I really like seeing him even if in a limited way here. First time we've seen him without his mask on at all. And he had a hat, so he still had a hat. We have not seen him just sans mask or hat. So we're, we're making progress, but still no, t- we don't know if he's got hair under there. We don't know what it looks like. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to wait and see if we're ever going to get a full-on look at Tim Blake Nelson's head of hair on this show, Watchmen. It's all I'm really concerned about. Really the, the top mystery, top mystery. Yeah. Forget the silver slider. What's going on <laughs> under that silver mask uh, for Tim Blake Nelson? We'll see what's coming up next on Watchmen Week 5, Episode 5. Little Fear of Lightning is what is coming next. Antonio and I will be back to podcast about that episode. If you are not already subscribed to Series regular now is the time to do so you will make sure that you do not miss a single episode of our weekly watchman coverage subscribe wherever you get your podcasts your ratings and reviews greatly appreciated make sure to check out thr.com slash watchman where we'll have even more watchman coverage for you here on the hollywood reporter antonio's on twitter he's at ac mazzaro i'm on twitter as well at round howard anything else antonio no, that's it. I really enjoyed this episode as usual. I'm loving Watchmen. Can't wait to see next week's. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.